You're listening to the Top Woman Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Top Woman Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Top Woman. Business Unusual. So, okay, um, you know, welcome everybody to um, today's Business Unusual podcast. And today I'm joined by award-winning um, South African um, um, Yolanda Cuba, and she's the, the current group executive for both digital and fintech for MTN. They're so lucky to have you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ralph. That is so kind. And thanks for having me as well, Anisha. Oh, pleasure. So, I mean, I'm not sure where you are. I'm in Cape Town. It, I don't know what's happening to the weather, but it's meant to be sunny and bright, but it was raining all last night. It was crazy. But whereabouts are you based at the moment? Are you in Joburg? I'm in Johannesburg. And it's a lovely day out for a change. Oh, you're lucky. So <laughs> you look very beautiful. And we were talking earlier about your hairstyle and, and everything. So, uh, you know, I must compliment you. Um, jo the Joburg weather is doing you well. Thank you so much. <laughs> so, I mean, I suppose there's so much to talk about, really, because I think we've been tracking sort of you and your career for many years now. I think we've been sort of looking at what you've been doing since early 2000s. And I know that you, we recognized you in our Top Empowered Businesswoman of the Year in 2006. But obviously, that success comes from a lot of hard work. And, and, and we know that uh, success is not a, a single journey. You know, it, it comes from support from other people. And I was saying to you earlier, I didn't really know too much about your journey to get to even that stage, never mind where you are now. I know you're from Googs. I know you went to UCT, so you're a Cape Town girl. Um, but maybe you want to talk us through sort of your upbringing. I mean, uh, I mean how did you get that inquiring mind, that sort of that determined uh, person who's looking for information? Where, where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, I, I, just to give you a bit of color, um, I was born in, in Cape Town. Um, yeah. I, I, I tell people that I was born at the waterfront because I was born at the Somerset Hospital looking at the sea. So, you know. My brother was born there. My brother was born <laughs> there. I was born. And, um, and, and I, uh, I grew up there for my early years between there and actually Johannesburg. Um, yeah. And... What was interesting about my lifestyle between Johannesburg and, and Cape Town is that when I lived in Johannesburg, I lived with one of my grandmothers and uh, we lived in a shack, right? So I knew the, the side of neediness and, and not having and, and lack, right? And then when I, when I was in Cape Town, I lived with my, uh, with, with my mother's family, which were more affluent. They had uh, shops, they had butcheries and things like that. So there were business people, mostly women, because my grandfather had passed on. And, and so it was this sort of complete opposite, to be honest, uh, in terms of, uh, of, um, of just where you find yourself as a child, right? And um, the first sort of most probably uh, um, 
drive that I got was from my grandmother, who was a, um, a preschool teacher, who actually like entrenched in us, even as when we're going to crash, right? To say um, education is the key out of poverty, right? And your so grandmother in when, Joburg or your grandmother? That was in Joburg. That was in Joburg. Hey, right? Wow. And, 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 and she drove that to us hard. So when we were about four years old, we're coming back home and there was this, uh, you know, those black chalk, the chai body kind of standing ones. And we had to write vowels. We had to write numbers. And none of our, our, our friends were doing that. So before you could go play, you had to do things like that at my grandmother's house. And, and so I guess that already actually put us in a, in a space and in a, in a mental state that said, you have to know more. And, and so we actually grew up with that as part of our DNA almost. And then when I went to Cape Town and being exposed now to the business side of, uh, of the world, you know, it just expands that a little bit. I just remember when, when I was about in standard, when standard three, um, yeah. My uncle, who used to work for Anderson Consulting, then now Accenture, actually made us digitize my uh, my my aunt's shop's uh, stock system, right? So literally, we were sitting and actually, instead of playing TV games on 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 the computer, which is what our friends were doing, we were actually digitizing the stock system, right? So, just in terms of those kind of things, you know, it always piques your curiosity before time, if I call it that. And, and so you always sort of have, you develop this sort of latent almost uh, curiosity that is mm -hmm. sitting there that says, actually there's always something more that can be done. And, and so that's really what, uh, what, what drove me in the early years. And, um, and then when uh, I was with, when, when we were with my stepfather, I mean, my stepfather's big thing to us was, and this now is in high school, he used to say, my education is not contagious. It's not a disease, you know? And this guy, I mean, right now he's a judge at, uh, he's my ex-stepfather now. He's, he's a judge in the Western We're not going to mention that. Yeah, but, um, but uh, he, he actually loved education, you know? The first thing he'd ever did for us was to buy us dictionaries, including my mother, because I was asking about a word that I found offensive and the word was called native, right? And I said, someone called me a native and I was angry, right? At that time, it had a negative connotation. Let's call it what it is. But he actually said, what is the meaning of native, right? And, and I couldn't tell them what the meaning of native. I just said, it's a swear word. And he decided, he went to Rondebosch. He got on a bus, went to Rondebosch at the bookstore and was staying in Kailicha at that stage and came back with dictionaries for my mom, for my twin sister and I, and for, my, and for my brother. And he gave us all dictionaries and he made me read what is the definition of native in the dictionary. And even today, I still remember what is the definition of native. And <laughs> after that, he says, what is wrong with that word? Right? Are you not from this place? Are you not of origin of this place? So what is wrong with the word? And that actually made me then also curious about actually finding out, out about for myself, deeper meanings of stuff. What does something really mean? So when someone tells you something, don't necessarily take it at face value, go and check it, right? And so you, you develop this kind of mindset that actually is most probably more curious than most people. And yeah, and then, uh, and then I guess as time went on, 
it developed more and more into a business kind of curiosity. And then obviously now into a more technology kind of curiosity. So basically pivoting myself through that over time. Well, we got a, an interesting story coming up. I can feel it. So it's so funny because when I was, I think I turned 13 and my dad also bought all three of us, got three, two brothers, uh, thesauruses. So similar to the dictionary. <laughs> Also became very inquisitive about words as well and, yeah. and their meaning. So there's, there's a big correlation. And, and I'm really interested to find out, like, what was the business side? I mean, you, you talk about your, your other grandmother in Cape Town running businesses. What did you learn, you think, in, in, from that? So I know you learned from your uncle around <clears throat> the coding. Um, was there anything significant you learned from the business side of things, just being engaged in business? Because I think it does help, right, being involved yeah, in absolutely. business. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I mean, I guess there are a couple of lessons you learn when you when when you are in a business environment. Firstly, that success is a lot of small steps. Mm. You know, there was nothing that my grandmother did that was a big step. Right. Sometimes she, she sold furniture and somewhere else she was selling meat. Somewhere else she was selling general dealer kind of uh, goods in a, in a store. Um, same with my aunt. Right. And, um, and, and we would make more money or, uh, when we would sell what we call uh, the AFO, so the intestines and the lungs oh, and whatever, yeah, yeah. Because, the, because that the, the slaughterhouses used to actually dispose of at the time, and we used to take it at nominal value and then sell it at a, at a profitable amount, right? So everything you made was actually profit effectively. So, so just actually understanding that there are cherries on top and then there is the baseline. And every time when you go to work, whenever you build a business, you actually have to build for the baseline, not for the cherry on top. The cherry on top is the cherry on top. And a lot of people, when they actually discuss their business models, you'll hear about them talking about their alpha, their outperformance. The outperformance is the cherry. That's not the baseline. So a lot of people are not able to actually understand that you actually have to cover your fixed cost first before you even think about what do you actually make about that. So that kind of thought process and just understanding a business from, I would say more an elementary perspective, actually yeah. helped me or a fundamental perspective that actually helped me. And, and that I use in everything that I do. The second thing that I learned there is if you're selling anything, right? Never let a customer walk away without buying something, right? It didn't matter if it was two cents, you know, my, my aunt would be like, she will, she will give someone, she'll put the change on the counter and then she'll be like, here are sweets, this sweet is three cents, this one is one cent, the chair piece is two cents and so on. So can I take this? And then, you know, by the time the person leaves, they live without any change, right? And, 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 and that actually also, strange enough, when I, was not, when I joined Telco, it's one of the things that I, I actually used to talk about with, uh, with my ex-boss this whole idea of sensitization, that anything that someone has in their pockets is an available avenue for revenue, right? Yeah. And, and so my brain then works like that. It's, okay, if I was in a store, I'd be trying to sell these little things uh, on the counter. And when I'm in a digital environment, how do I then translate those little things into something that someone can actually buy from me? So, and all those things were important building blocks, right? In terms of uh, understanding business and how business works. And then also it's a game of perseverance. There are ups and downs. And, um, you know, when ShopRite and Pick and Pay started building outside the, 
the townships. You know, mm. they fundamentally changed the, the township economy. Mm. And they actually, and I know they don't want to hear this, they killed <laughs> all the mom and pop stores in the township. They killed the township economy and they moved it from inside the township to the edges where they could obviously have safety and all those kind of stuff to the edges of the township. And unfortunately in the process, because I mean, if you're going for your grocery shopping, you know, the behavior was you would do it once off in town and then the rest of the month you actually shop within the township. Now it actually fundamentally changed that way. Now you were actually going weekly to, to pick and pay or shop right at the edge, right? Next to the train station. So it normally was with the commuter kind of center, that was their strategy. So, and, and seeing that demise, right, was, a, um, was a, 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 a key learning for me, you know, um, around just how business works, right? Mm. That competition comes in many forms. It mm. is ruthless. It doesn't think about what you want. It's thinking mm. about what it wants, mm. right? And sometimes the business models are not even the same. And you actually have to be able to stand back and say, how do I change? Rather mm. than trying to pour in money into that. My aunt poured in a lot of her savings back into the business for many years, right? Mm. And she lost them. She lost them. And, and, and so one of the things that I'm most probably better at than, than what my family was at the time is when to know to cut losses, right? I, I, there's very few times when I saw something that wasn't working and I was not able to cut my losses. Mm. Yeah. But I mean, that, that's, that's like navigating the landscape and seeing something's got to change and then moving quickly, right? I mean, that, 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 and, and, I, and so funny because all these successes that I see you doing, it's sort of, I'm understanding it now because of your upbringing. I mean, there's a big for me, big issue on two of those things that you mentioned. One is that entrepreneurship, that, that township economy, how do we drive that? And, and there is some understanding of how do we reverse that or, you know, think about it. But the other thing is sales generally. What I see is that there seems to be almost a negative perception amongst a lot of South Africans around sales, but you picked that up and you drove it. And that's probably why you're very successful because you understand the innate human need to sell and to buy. Um, but but then you went and studied, and you went and studied um, a BCom, and then you did like you know uh, research, and then you and and you did um, accounting. So you went back into the traditional South African way. Why was that? What what was what was driving that? Yeah. So I mean, in terms of my career, I was always interested uh, in in actually being a buy side sell side analyst. I was, I, I, I thought the JSE was sexy and so mm. on. So that's where I wanted to go, right? And um, about a year before completing my articles, I then went and I uh, spent some time with people, different people in, in the financial services industry, just calling them up. Literally, I took the financial mail. The financial mail yeah. used to actually take out yeah. the, it still does, the top analysts, right? Yeah. Every year, and I took that insert and I just took, I, I just picked some of the top analysts, called them up, cold called them, I don't know them from the bar of soap, and basically said, I want to talk to you about this. We can either have a lunch or we can talk over the phone. A lot of the guys were open to having a proper lunch. I was doing my articles. I couldn't afford lunches at proper places in Sanchez. They invited me to proper places, and I was like, good to go. 
and basically um yeah and i spoke to people with from different kind of spaces within the financial services space and um i was still convinced that i wanted to be a, a an analyst and until the day that i met with someone in an investor who was in corporate finance and i said just as a parting shot right he said by the way what do you do with the research reports that the guys from research actually gave <laughs> and he said and he said if it's got nothing to do with what i'm working on it goes into file 13. i sat back and on that day right everything in me that wanted to be an analyst died mm-hmm. died because i had done a little bit of work before that with my uncle that my mm-hmm. uncle had asked me to do to actually find out what is the one or two things that I can live without. Mm. Right? And he said to me, Yolanda, you don't even have to come back to me and tell me what it is. But for me, at the time, this is the uncle that was at Anderson Consulting. He said, yeah. after doing my MBA overseas, I came back and I asked myself that question. And basically, I said, he said to himself that he cannot live without owning his time. It didn't matter how much people paid him, but he wanted to own his time. And, and therefore, when he came back, he started his own business started Safika and so on. And, and that's how he, he actually left corporate, right? He was in, how he left consulting. And basically he said, you must go and find out. Sit alone for a couple of days and really go deep into yourself. What is the one thing that you, you can live without? And, and I did the work and basically I found that there were two things. And because I'm me, it couldn't be one. So I, I, mean, <laughs> I, 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 I realized that relevance was a big part of what I wanted to, what I wanted to feel. So even if someone gave me all the money, all the time in the world, if I didn't feel like I was relevant in the context of whatever was happening, then I actually uh, would not be happy in that role. And, and so how did that play out even in the choices that I made? So when, if, if, when I qualified, there were less than 100 black female CAs in, in South Africa. So I could pick where I wanted to go. So a lot of my friends, went to R&D, Investec, and so on. Well done to them. And I decided that I actually am going to go to some smallish company called Mbella Panda, right? And how did I determine I wanted to go into that? I said, I don't want to be one of 20 or 30 people that are joining Investec on, on 1 January. You know, I want to be missed when I'm not at work because that's important to me. Remember, different things are important. Other people, prestige is important. Other people, something else is important. For me, that was important. So that's how I even chose, even my, where I did my articles, where I did my articles with Fisher Hoffman, rather than doing it with the big fives. I was actually accepted first by Deloitte, but I ended up at Fisher Hoffman doing my articles there, because I said, I wanted the breadth of, of, serv- of services that one can actually be able to get experience from. So I did from box jobs all the way to corporate finance. You know, whereas if in your mainstream kind of institution, you are, you sort of are, are, you've got these guardrails that actually lead you in a specific path and you can only do certain things. You know, you start off with debit balances, then the following year credit balances, the following year this and so on. So yeah, so I, I got to have a breadth of experience that most uh, people don't actually have um, in, in doing that. But again, it was through understanding who I am. Well, it's, it is that, but also you had this disruptive mentality already. So you saw 
by taking a risk and seeing opportunities. But I mean, there's been a lot of evidence around like, um, you know, going to Harvard or going to one of the smaller universities, generally only a few people actually really crack it from going to someone like Harvard, whereas the same top students, if they go to some other universities, are equally able to crack it. And was in the same way because of that exposure. Um, I mean, what, what, what that, that, that thinking to not go in that way, go against the grain, yes. that risk taking, because that's a risk, right? I mean, mm. that foresight, what, mm. is that kind of reading, do you think, is that from, I mean, you talk around, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> it's from the doing, right? It's from yeah. just doing. It's from, my, no, it's from the people around me. So uh, when I had a choice, when I went yeah. to, uh, when I, I mean, when I got accepted at Deloitte, I phoned my mom to say, they need me to choose a specialization before I even go in. And my mom had done articles as a lawyer in the early 80s in, at Malinix, uh, which you would know, which was yeah. the biggest firm actually at the time in, in, in the Western Cape. And, um, and she said, Yolanda, after two years, of being at Melanix, right? I actually had to learn everything from scratch when I started my practice in Kempton Park in the early 80s. So she said, you know, not taking anything away from Melanix, the scale of the cases that they were actually um, uh, doing actually just necessitated that people only do a small sliver of stuff rather than actually doing a broad range of stuff. And she said, you know, for her, she would have rather have done a broad range of stuff that would have prepared her to actually go and open her own practice, which yeah. she then had to learn herself when she, when she started. So yeah. with that, which is her experience, then I yeah. took that and I said, okay, then I'm gonna go with what you would have wanted uh, to have done. So, I mean, I suppose the lesson there is find a mentor, either someone that's done something similar to what you're going to do or experience it and ask them, what do they think? I mean, that, that, that one idea that, um, you know, you know, you were talking about the sales um, and I suppose, uh, you know, how do we, how do we, how do you, how do you get yourself out of that comfort zone and phoning people for these opportunities to even speak to people we're, we're dealing a lot with millennials who are used to working on social media through emails and all these different platforms and they're communicating i see my children do it mm. and what i'm not seeing is i'm seeing a special opportunity with young people if they can pick up the phone and dial it and actually re are you laughing but i mean i saw as an opportunity to talk about this because <laughs> are you seeing it i mean it, it takes guts right it takes balls to do that sorry for my french but it yeah, does yeah. but 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 you did it right and not many people do it and it's almost like having these podcasts as an opportunity to share these insights but it actually is about sharing things that people need to implement and do i mean how important is it in your life because that was one step but i mean i would guess that when you get in a sticky situation and you don't know what to do because it happens to all of us that you probably just pick up the phone and phone someone that you may or may not know. Is, is, yeah. is that sort of what happens? Yes. I mean, like at the end of the day, I mean, a lot of people, what a lot of people don't know about me is that I'm actually an introvert um, that actually has learned how to, to actually get out there. Um, and, and so being an, uh, an introvert, 
means that I am scared of actually approaching people. Naturally. Naturally. I'm just naturally scared. So a lot of networking functions, you'll see me, I'll go and network and then I'll pull away. Right? It's just who I am. I, I'm, I'm not going to try and change that now. I'm too old. And <laughs> however, what I did learn to do is to force myself to actually do it. Um, you know, I mean, I think it was most probably about six or seven years ago, I told people that I actually still sometimes still have to count to five, right? Mm. And, and say, by the time you get to five, you must have spoken to that person, mm. right? And mm. in my mind, I'm still counting as I'm walking, one, two, and then you start <laughs> slowing down, you know, because like you're getting closer to the person, right? But you are forcing yourself to do it. Because once you're actually in it, you're actually quite comfortable. Because yeah. we actually all, in some way, are conversant with other people, to be honest. But it's just that initial kind of, uh, um, kind of fear that you have to overcome. Once you've overcome that, it becomes a little bit, it becomes easy. So, so for me, um, the whole idea is to say to myself, um, is it more important for me to actually sit in this corner and do nothing? Or is it more important for me to cross that line and actually yeah. talk to someone? Right? Yeah. And, and nine out of 10, it is more important to talk to someone. Because if you, if you, if you, you can achieve, as they say, uh, stuff by yourself, then it's not big enough. Yeah. That's so the bottom line. I, I like your tactic. Other people. Yeah, uh, but I like your tactic as well, which is count to five. So it takes away you worrying. It's like, just count to five, like take an action. It's about doing an action. And I mean, you say it's important to meet other people. I mean, is that because of what informs that sort of, because I agree with you. <laughs> so, I mean, as I said, if you if whatever you want to do is something that you can achieve by yourself, then you must know, then it is not big enough. Right. I mean, you know, um, I always say, you know, we are only scared of people that we actually put on some form of pedestal. You know, you are not scared of talking to your helper. You're not scared of talking to your brother. You're not scared of t talking to your mom. You're not because, because you don't put them on any kind of pedestal, right? Sure. You start getting scared when you actually have attributed some form of value to someone yeah. that is higher than self, right? Yeah. So if you say it's the president, yeah. right, or it's the minister, and I always then tell myself is that first and foremost, there are people. And yeah. the, the crudest way I put it is Same. I just say, they also go to the toilet like me. Yes, you know? Yes. You know? and, and that sort of evens out everything for me. So, for sure. and, and as a result, I've been able to pick up the phone to anyone and everyone. Yeah. Right? Because I just try and equalize in my mind uh, yeah. what makes us the same. And basically, as soon as I get to that level, then I just use that as a, as a basis. Yeah. So I agree with you. I also do the same. So we've had many probably evenings with ministers and presidents. And, and so it's like, wow, okay, this is going to be interesting, but like them, they do what I do. Yeah. They also poop. So let's go. Yeah, let's go. Uh, <laughs> and so a lot of it's self-talk, right? I mean, it's, it's like just talking to yourself to calm yourself down and just try and see the positives in that situation and don't run away with yourself. Like they're normal. I must tell you, I tried to do that when I first met Madiba and I failed miserably, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, he came in dancing and, yeah. and then he touched everybody. And I, 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 I must have spent two days calming myself down to say he's just normal. He poops like everybody. And, and it all went wrong. It went yeah. wrong, Yolanda. 
No, but, but you are as a special person, right? Um, in fact, I still even remember the first time I also met him. And, you know, the comment that he made, he was at, my, at our offices in Bella, and, um, and he, said, he said, she walks with such grace, you know? And I was like, ah, did you guys all hear that? <laughs> I'm like, I mean, even if he had said her hair was beautiful, it would have been nice. But even if my hair was like standing everywhere, it was like, you know? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, and then I, I met him a number of times after that. It's just, he was just a wonderful man. A charmer, was, a charmer. Yeah. And he was a charmer. And I think he touched everybody, awesome. you know, and I think yeah. we, we did a publication of him for his 90th and his 100th and a birthday. But I think what he does, he had those principles that are, you know, important for all leadership, transcending generations. And I think yeah. we're going to look back in 200 years from now and still look at some of the things that he's, <laughs> he stands for. But I mean, yeah. your time in Vela was, was unique for a number of reasons. Personally, because your own personal journey, but also in Velapanda. So they were on a journey. And, and so we met Madiba because he, we, we did a publication called Impormalela. I was looking at the top black empowered companies. And the president said, challenge us to say, find the top 300. And so we did. And Velapanda was one of them that we yeah. found and found out. And then your growth was happening and we identified you at the time. How, how much of an impact did getting that recognition did that have for you do you think because i mean you were one of the first let's say you were the youngest black woman to be on the jsc as a ceo um i mean the the the, the reasons were outstanding but i mean how much how, how how much do you think that changed your life when you got that sort of recognition attention how how, how did that impact yolanda yeah, I, I think, I mean, you know, the first thing that happened is, uh, is confidence, right? Um, yeah. Because up, to, up until that stage, up until 2003, 2004, 25 years old, 26 years old, you, 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 uh, you, you're just like, I'm just working, right? You start off there and, uh, and then you have people that say, that say we see potential in you. And um, I remember like uh, when I was there, when after the interviews and everything, and then I was offered the position uh, of deputy CEO, and um, and and I was told to go and consider it, right? Because it has implication for me, right, on my time and all those kind of stuff. And all. and um, I didn't get back to them. Yeah, I didn't get back to them, right? Um, and then you forget or, or no? How can you forget something that big? You don't forget, <laughs> right? You, you are you are scared of accepting, right? Okay. You are actually scared of accepting. This, I mean, for me, that was actually scared of success. Scared of success. Yes, you know, because yeah. you you think you're not ready, right? And other people are saying, actually, we think you maybe are. you're not ready today, but we see yeah. the potential and we'll support you. So, and I just remember the deputy chairman coming to me and saying, "Yeah, when? You know, what do you think this is, right?" And I'm like, "Sorry, chairman, like you know." And then like, you know, you know, you haven't come back to us. This is now two and a half days later that you haven't come back to us with a response. And I'm like, yes, chairman. And, and then he says to me, Yolanda, we are here. We will support you. Right. Yeah. So and we've made this decision. I mean, this decision was not made by one person. It was made collectively by us. Yeah. Right. So we are here. Right. 
and that sense of comfort that said, actually, you know, actually there's a group of people behind me. I'm not standing alone. Actually, was what then became the catalyst to me saying, okay, I'll take the role, right? Because at the end of the day, they can offer, but I have to still accept, right? But yeah, yeah. it took me two and a half days before accepting. And that was because the deputy chairman, Nikki, actually came to me and said, okay, what's your story here? You know, and, 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 and after that, you know, um, between the executives at Mbella and, and other people, I was well supported, right? I had a sponsor in Tokyo. Tokyo, I mean, every other day, pretty much, would sit down with me when people leave the office around half past four, half past five, um, spend time with me. And he said, Yolanda, I'm going to tell you stories. And in these stories, it's up to you to pick out the pearls. And I'll make an example about the Mandela story in a second. And, 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 he, said, and he said to me, um, you know, in every, the difference between you and me is that I'm wise and you're clever. And this is about sharing wisdom, right? Because you can do all these preps, you can make these things dance, you can add numbers that I can't see, you know, but at the end of the day, wisdom is important, right? And he used the sessions to build my confidence around awareness, EQ, all sorts of stuff. And there's, for example, one of the stories he told was around Mandela and how Mandela, around people, for example, would actually when he reads the newspaper, see someone who's distraught or he's, who's fallen on hard times, he would actually ask Zelda to actually call those people, right? People he didn't even know. And he would call them up and say, hi, my name is Nelson Mandela. I wanted to check whether you were fine. Wow. Not to say I'm gonna solve your problem. Not, and a lot of people never believed it was Mandela, right? Until like it was explained a couple of times that, like literally, you know, and, and, and that was around humanity, right? So those are the lessons that I'm talking about when I'm talking about my, mentor, my, about my mentors. The other one that I love a lot is, you know, the first time we went to see EPSA, before we did a transaction with EPSA, I mean, he goes with me and in the car, he says, you will say nothing in the meeting. I've just qualified. I'm a CA. <laughs> you must know a new CA is exactly like an MBA graduate. You don't have to ask them. They tell you, right? <laughs> you know, like it's, you know, it's like, hello, my name is Yolanda. I'm a CA. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm an MBA graduate, you know, whatever. So anyway, so he says to me, don't say anything. So I walk into the meeting in this huge boardroom. Like, I mean, the original EFSA boardroom was so big and, and the table was so long, you could sit most probably 60 people. And, and there were most probably about six or seven of us in the meeting with the chairman, uh, the CEO, the CFO, and so on at the time. Daniel Kronia was the chairman at the time. And, um, and, and all I did was to greet. All I did was greet. That's it. And I was sitting there with my little book and writing notes and whatever. So these guys must have thought, oh, this girl is just... Uh, as just a secretary or something, right? And yeah, and then we left. Second meeting says the same thing. And it's like, no talk, right? And now I'm so agitated, right? I go in there, I sit down, do what he told me. And then afterwards, literally, at the, towards the end of the meeting, he says, 
Jacques and Nali. Nali was the CEO at the time. Jacques and Nali, CFO, CEO. Can you please uh, uh, liaise with Yolanda on that matter? Right? What had just happened? Why did he say I must keep quiet? Why didn't, why, why did we play out this whole thing? You know? It was because one, he was borrowing me his equity. Okay? Two, is that his view is, if you actually mess up by being an empty vessel, making the loudest noise, those people are gonna write you off, right? So what happened after he said that? Normally, if you try and call a CEO of a big listed company, what happens? They give you the runaround, right? Or a CFO in this company. So I didn't even have to call them. They called me. Where did we have our first meeting? In the little garden outside at Villa Panda in Melrose, not at Upset uh, Towers in town, right? And that's the power of someone who is a sponsor, someone who is a mentor, and someone who actually understands wisdom. That actually, this is actually not just, it's not about cleverness. It actually is much broader kind of human uh, interactions and how you build someone's uh, um, credibility around people. So yeah, so those are the kind of things that I went through that were amazing. And I mean, Bella was an amazing time. And, and more than anything in Bella, it was me growing myself and starting to believe in myself in terms of what I When did you know? When did you, when did it, because I've heard this as well. Um, and I love those stories, by the way, I must tell you, I, I'm going I'm to be using these stories myself. So um, I, think, I think what he did is he gave you power by you saying nothing. He actually gave you the power because you're the one who then makes the decision. That's what he's saying. You're absorbing. And so we don't have to say to have power, we can observe. And that's coaching. I mean, you talk about mm. that, I'm sure, as well. But, but I mean, I also know, because we have given many awards to many women, and, and often they say this was a catalyst. And it didn't happen there and then, because often they were like almost denied it. No, I'm not worthy yet. And it's a bit like your, your promotion with your job. And so we've seen that as well. People like um, KPMG, they, they researched and they found that generally women will only take a promotion if they're about 70 to 80% capable of doing the job, where men will jump, will jump all in at 50%. Oh, no, we're, I'll learn it. Give it to me. I can do that. And yeah. so it's actually about changing a mindset that of we can support you or let's get you ready. But, but like I said at the beginning, where, do you, where did you sense that thing like, I now believe. I, I'm, I'm not the shit, but I, I'm, I'm arrived. So in, when I... Just, yeah, just before I was appointed CEO uh, of, of Bella Group, um, I was deputy CEO for a number of years. And I decided that I'm going to go to a professional coach. Uh, her name was Belinda. And I went to Belinda and I said, Belinda, she asked me, why do you want to do this, right? And then I said, it's because I feel like I've, I've, I've actually zoomed through in, in corporate and I, I don't think I've built enough capability maybe, I just feel like I've got holes in my development, right? That was our first session. In our last session, we had 10 or 12 sessions together. And, and she said, in our last session, she, said, she, she goes back in the notes and she says, Yolanda, these are the things that you said to me in our first discussion. Do you feel like we've addressed them? And then she just articulated, there were about four of them. And, and, and I said, you know what, Belinda, 
I actually realized something that I never had holes to start with. Right? <laughs> right? Because remember, your coach is not even a subject matter expert on, on what you do. Right? So um, a lot of what they do is actually let you actually uh, bring to the fore what you already know. Yeah. But you are just not confident enough, maybe, or not conscious enough, maybe, to actually acknowledge, right? And that's what I said. I said, Belinda, I actually realized that I never had a host to start off with. Yeah. 12 weeks later, yeah. And, and do you still have coaches? No, I don't have a coach right now. Okay. And, but and I, do we... ha- I, I do have, like, people I chat to, mentors okay. and so on. I mean, even after Mbella, believe it or not, um, how I decided to, to go into corporates, into SAB, was yeah. as, as a result of one of my mentors, Simon Sussman from Woolworths. Um, okay. And he said to me, Yolanda, anyone can be a shooting star, but what's going to make you sustainable? That was Simon's question to me. Mm-hmm. That was back in 2009, 10, when he asked okay. me that question. And I mean, basically, um, and that's what ultimately made me go, that was 2010. He actually made me uh, go and join SAB because I told him that actually after I, a few nights of thinking about it deeply that I wanted to go to an organization that has demonstrated repeatable models of success. Yeah. And I approached two CEOs. One was SAB, Norman Adami. Two was Putuman Kleko at MTN. How strange is that? Funny. So 10 years ago, I actually met with, with those two people. But I mean, and then 10 years later, I joined MTN. And you, you went back, yes, you, your second choice. So, I mean, SAB does strike me as, like, if I think of SAB and I, and I looked at why, we, when you went there, I was like, they're almost like a factory and it doesn't seem to be just the CEO. They seem to be that, yeah. you know, great, great company that endears this development of leadership. They have, mm-hmm. like you said, a track record of developing mm-hmm. great leaders. What did you learn in terms of leadership from their process? And I mean, and, 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 do you think their factory of doing it, their system, is repeatable in other organizations? Yeah. So, I mean, SAB, as I said, I went there because I said I, won, I, I didn't know if I winged it or I did it at Mbella. <laughs> so to ensure that I actually can do it repeatedly in the future, uh, considering that I was in my early 30s when I was making this decision, was basically saying, for the next 30 years, what's going to make me sustainable, right? It's actually embedding these things. And basically, I mean, what are the big lessons from SAB is really management principle, right? With no matter what you do, how do you make sure that you increase your chances of success to about 70%, right? Rather than actually um, uh, at 50% or whatever, right? And, And SAB, having done that, I mean, remember, they came from the South Tip of Africa, a little bit like MTN too, which is why I yeah. chose those two companies, yeah. from South Tip of Africa and became the number two brewer in the world, yeah. only to AB InBev, right? And, and MTN did the same thing to be in the top 10 telcos in the world, yeah. right? I mean, coming from the South Tip of Africa. So there is something that you have done right, and there's something that you're repeating that is actually allowing you to, to get there. And, and so um, SAB, it was the management principle. So how they manage, I mean, everything was, you know, there was an SAB way of doing it, manufacturing way, 
the marketing way, they're this way, and so on. And and although it wasn't formulaic, but the philosophy mm. was actually quite specific. And mm. and everyone in the organization was very clear about mm. the SAB, the SAB way, right? Mm. So there wasn't a lot of kind of debates around it. And then there was a lot of science in SAB. Mm. So I mean a lot of the decisions was based on data. Right? Mm. I mean very few decisions at exco level were based on already what already. I know, what you know, whatever. It was and, and Norman style, um, which was something that you know you know you had to get used to Norman style first and then once you appreciated it, you actually understood him. And, and Norman Stahl, one of the great things he used to do, um, if you presented something mm. and say, this is the route that we're going, that I'm recommending mm. that we go, yeah. he wants to know what are the other four that you left on the table that you're not doing. Because his logic is, if you are clear on why you're not doing the other three or four, then the likelihood of success on, on this one is that you would, would be higher because you would have considered all the failure points on the other ones. So you would you factor in those in your in your final solution. So and 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 he was a lot about that about the veracity of thinking, right? And mm-hmm. can you support the data? Um, what you I mean, what you were saying with data, with real data points and things like that. So for me, those were the kind of stuff that I I learned at SAB, like the fundamentals of of managing in a in a big corporate and actually making sure that the system is aligned. You know, if there's one thing that was uh, amazing at SAB was that even our strategy, the cleaner could say it. They could mm. tell you what is the five pillar strategy. Even today, as I sit here, left SAB in 2014, I can tell you what was the five pillar strategy, right? <laughs> so, you know, so, it was ingrained. It was yeah. ingrained in you. It was in everything. And no one used to say to, to me, as a head of strategy as well, to say, Yolanda, the problem with you guys in these executive positions is that you get bored with your strategy. Yeah. The guys in the middle, in the bow of the organization, actually don't hear the strategy every day. So you have to keep on reinforcing it a hundred times over. You know? so, be- so because you get bored, you don't repeat it, but they need the You don't repeat it, you keep going, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But they need it, yeah, it's in your head all the yeah. time, but you need to be yes. verbal. So, I mean, yeah. this, I feel like time just disappeared and, and we, 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 we're not even at Vodacom. We haven't even entered MTN. We're not, <laughs> yeah. We haven't even talked about Africa Tech or, or gender <laughs> empowerment or, or any of those things. So, I mean, I want to quickly go to mm. Vodacom because you, you went there. Yeah. I mean, and, and you went there and you took on a big opportunity in Ghana. And I think it was a big... I mean, you talk about it being a big moment for you where you reinvented yourself. And so I think COVID has been an opportunity for people to reinvent themselves. And maybe you've done it twice. I don't know. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I would assume that you suddenly realize that there's a toolkit to reinventing yourself. What would that look like? Because if, 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 I think it, it's something that people have to do now or be looking at. And certainly people are sitting there going, geez, what I did before COVID is not working now. I need to reinvent myself. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and you've done it very successfully. So what yeah. would you say that was? Well, I guess, I mean, I must think of my time at, uh, what was at uh, in Ghana, right? Yeah. Uh, because that was most probably the biggest kind of pivot I've ever done in terms of who I am. I, I, I call it the, 
the defining moment in my life, one of the yeah. defining moments in my life. Yeah. And um, you know, going there, no one knew me. Yeah. Right? Other than what they Googled, but otherwise no one knew me. They didn't know my personality, you know. Yeah. Um, when I went, and, and so when I went there, the, the I The beauty of an immigrant. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and, and I asked myself first, who do I want Yolanda to be? And who is Yolanda? Not the consequence of the successes of, early, of, of my early life in Velapanda, where I was wearing gray suit, navy suits, black suits, and so on, and really being this more formal person, seen as this sort of future leader of South Africa, and don't, 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 and therefore act a specific way, do this in a specific way, be careful what you do and say, and so on. And I actually said, you know, Yolanda is this kind of person, right? And who I want Yolanda to be overlaps with Yolanda 90%, right? And, and basically then I said, then this is who I'm gonna try. The authentic Yolanda, not the one that's been defined a long time ago. A lot of people, I, I have friends, for example, who are, who are, let's say, gospel singers, right? They were singing gospel mm -hmm. when they were eight years old. Yeah. And now they are 30 years old, let's say. And at 30, now you are boxed in that you can't actually have a career outside being a gospel person. Now you have to be a minister or this. And, and, and some of them struggle with that, right? Because society has forced them into that box. So I had an opportunity and COVID is creating that, that opportunity to say, actually, you can change. People haven't seen you for nine months. So when you are reappear, you can be a different person if you want, right? And I gave myself that permission. First, give yourself the permission to actually be who you want to be, however defined, right? And the second thing then I did to actually really anchor it is then actually talk about it. You know, to say, mm. actually, this is who I think I am and who I would want to be. And, and the people around me then actually were able to reinforce what I was doing. I mean, I couldn't wear jeans to, to work for years, right? It was only, in, even in Ghana, I actually only started wearing jeans at MTN, even on a Friday. In Ghana, I would only wear it if we were going out into the field, right? But at work, I couldn't wear it because I didn't grow up in that. But yet I said, but this is who I am. So I introduced the culture of being more relaxed and whatever in other ways, making sure that you, you dress down I mean, I, the other day I was playing with my computer, with my, uh, my, my calculator. So I've got yeah. this calculator, yeah. right, 10HP, which I used yeah. to use when I was at varsity. Right? <laughs> I even stopped carrying this. I started carrying this. Ah. Right? So, so lose That's some of the... Sense. Yeah. You know, it, this is how practical it is. It is basically saying, I'm done being this. I want to be this. I want to be inclusive. I want people not to be scared because I'm using some funny calculator that I'm cleverer than they are. Mm. You know, I want my people and my team to know that we're in things together. So how do I then actually come to the level at which they operate while actually trying still to elevate their game, right? And mm. all that is part of a deliberate kind of process of actually mm. driving a specific agenda. So, so, so for me, those were the two things that I would say I did deliberately. And then mm -hmm. everything else somehow fell into place afterwards. You know, 
because I actually spoke about about who I wanted to be and how I wanted to be, and then taking practical steps like this one. I know for someone, one, they won't understand, right? They won't understand what's the difference between this and that. But there is a big difference when some, mm-hmm. when you walk into someone's office and they're carrying this 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 kind of uh, calculator. Yeah. Because you don't. I mean, an average person doesn't even understand like other than the numbers and the addition signs, what else is going on in this calculator? What is a PV? What is an FB? For sure. Know? Why does it have all these funny signs? You just don't understand. Yeah? So, yeah. So I actually wanted to be this approachable person where people can actually be able to approach and talk to. And, and by so doing, by the way, I then actually started also engaging in social media. You know? And actually also, the other thing that I did is my, my faith is important to me. And then I also started talking about my faith, basically to say, I'm accessible, I'm like you, right? I, I believe sometimes in the same things as you, sometimes I don't believe in the same things as you, doesn't matter, but I'm just like anyone else. Because I actually found that I, I got excluded from a lot of people just because of what I was doing. You know? and, and so I said, no, this is not for me. I want to be part of a community. I want to be, to be accessible to people. So it's, it's, it's a choice, right? It's a choice that I made. And, and I hope uh, anyone who wants to pivot actually understands that um, there are things that, it, it, it's not uncomfortable. Uh, a lot of people think it's uncomfortable to pivot. It's actually not uncomfortable because you are walking towards your true self. Yeah. I suppose we worry so much about other people. It's like walking up to someone and meeting them. It's those small little slips you did and then suddenly you realize it's about me feeling comfortable with me. Hmm. Um, Th- thanks for those insights. I mean, I know we're sort of running out of time here, and I and I want and I want to talk around tech in Africa. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, you are driving one of the biggest telcos in Africa in terms of their digital and their fintechs. To the, you know, as we said earlier, you got two jobs, not one. I mean, they, they, they must have a lot of faith in you. <laughs> and two of the biggest yeah. jobs as well, by the way. So you're driving a continent in terms of its digital transformation. I mean, we, we uh, last year we did an event called Africa Tech Week. This year we're doing it in November. We've got to get you to, to speak at our event. So we're going to invite you. But I mean, tech in Africa, we've seen it. We've seen the SABs of the world. And there's more, there's so many examples, there's Nando's, there's so many examples of South African companies who have succeeded internationally. And for me, the sense is often to look at the other organizations, the Facebooks, the Apples, those sorts of companies and seeing them as the heroes. And, and my mm-hmm. sense in looking at South Africa and being, analyzing performance in African companies and people is that we've got a wealth of opportunities here and technology is probably one of the biggest opportunities and enablers. But, but that's my thoughts. So, I mean, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, you, had, you probably had a choice of many organizations that you could join. You joined MTN and you joined a telco and you're someone that wants to invest in the future of things that are interesting and going somewhere. So why? Well, I mean, so, so I mean, one of the discoveries that I've made about myself when I was in Ghana is that I actually am driven by inclusion, and um, and and maybe just a quick story on how I got there is that when I went to Ghana, when we redefined our vision in Ghana in the business, not as a telco, but as to say we are we want to be the leading technology company um, that is igniting Ghana's digital revolution, right? Mm. And how we then played it out was uh, saying we will leave no one behind in a digital world. And everyone in the organization could actually articulate that. 
And, and for me, um, that sort of sense of importance of inclusion that with, with this sort of digital kind of thought process, we can actually include people. We, we, we actually have the ability to, to change the outcomes uh, for the next century. And, and basically, mm. that what, that's what appealed to me when this role actually was discussed with me by, uh, by Rob. It, it was literally to say, this is what I was passionate about when I was in Ghana, so it's <laughs> going to be aligned to that, right? So, um, and I literally um, said, you know, I looked at it and I said, you know, uh, one of the stats that I normally quote, I say, like, uh, banks have had more than 100 years to include people from a financial access and a financial inclusion mm-hmm. perspective. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they only decided to include 30%. Yeah. Right. So now, with, with us, we are actually going to say, we're saying that the 70% that was excluded, that's mm-hmm. who we're going to focus our primary attention on. Right? And we are going to cover everybody. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's really, for me, the passion point. It actually comes from a passion point rather than anything else, right? And that is from both digital and 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 and, and fintech, fintech, you know. And 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 you know. And so to tell you how it started, even in Ghana, when we said we leave no one behind, right? Yeah. And we're not excluding anyone. One of the things that we then said as a team and did is that we asked ourselves, where are we excluding people? Right? These are questions that we normally don't answer. I mean, you don't ask, where are we excluding people, right? Because we're always thinking about who's included and how we get more value from them. And we said, and for example, said people that are hearing and speech impaired are excluded from our call centers. They don't get serviced by us, and yet they are customers. And number two, they need data and SMS to actually communicate as a lifeline, rather than you and me who can use it for social media. Because you and I, you know, we can voice call, mm. you know, so we are always connected. But for them, if they don't have data and the data is too expensive for them, then they're not able to communicate. And basically what we did is we lowered the, the price of data for them by about 90%. Right? And said, this is in recognition that for this group of people, mm. this, is, this is a lifeline. It is not a entertainment or an extra to have kind of thing. And, and basically, we then actually created the ecosystem around, in, in, in Ghana, they call it the Accra Deaf School, but it's people with a lot of different uh, abilities and disabilities. And basically, um, we made them a distribution point so that they could make money from, from their efforts. And then in addition to that, we took some of their staff members, um, some of their um, members to be staff members in our organization. We taught our people how to sign as well as part of a program. And basically, in other words, that there is no excuse to leave anyone behind. And that's how practically we brought it to life. And then in FinTech, it's much easier, right? It's around financial mm-hmm. inclusion, using Momo, using mobile money as a platform, peer-to-peer lending, remittances, insurance, all these other services, investments and savings and so on. And, and, and for us, as, definitely as MTN, Right. I mean, this is something we're super passionate about. I mean, there are two things that I really want to achieve. One is literally almost eliminate anyone who does not have financial access in Africa. Mm. Number two 
is to make sure that MTN is the leading digital content provider in, 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 in Africa for solutions that are relevant for Africans. And, and for me, if I achieved that in the next five years, I would have done more. Wow. So, I mean, I, I heard about this and I was like, that's pretty, I don't know, brave, innovative, whatever. And then I think to myself, well, how can you transcend that thinking? Because I look at, um, and, and maybe this is our, is our way of talking about gender empowerment, but I look at women entrepreneurs and their financing model and lack of financing. But then you look at the impact of lending women money, especially in COVID. So you can look at it and you can, and 95% of women repay their debt, even when they fail versus about 50% of men. So I was thinking, why aren't we incentivizing that? Like, so you reduced it for people with disability. Why aren't we reducing interest rates or reducing the cost of financing to women in rural areas? Because you know your money is safe. And so that was the, the, the one thought I've had for a very long time is, yeah. Just like work rules need to change for women because yep. they're different. We've got to look at that. Maybe why isn't financing rules? Change it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, what, one of the things that we're doing in my team uh, in, uh, within the FinTech space is that we've developed a Bentech team that actually does uh, individualized scoring for credit, right? And using AI, we're able can, now we can actually individualize risk. So what banks tend to do and credit providers, they amalgamate risk, right? They average yeah. risk in terms of a category. Yeah. Now we can actually allocate different risk profile to an individual the same way that from a um, telco perspective, we can individualize the offerings that we give yeah. you. So we don't just say now you are a high value segment. We actually say you are a segment of one instead of segment of many. And we give you offers. If you are more a data user, you only use three gigs a month and so on, we will only give you the things that you need and based on your individual behavior. So we are now moving towards that for credit. So my, the bank tech team in my team uh, is actually working actively towards that. We, uh, we got approval in Uganda by the, from the central bank about two weeks ago to now commercially launch this. We've done the POC and we really believe that this is a game changer in terms of actually playing in that space and, and actually understanding and, and just making sure that we include more people. Remember, I mean, um, in banks, in terms of credit scoring, some of these, of these people that we're talking to that are excluded from the financial inclusion perspective, yeah. people, they don't have credit worthiness kind of scores, right? Yeah. So how do you create that? And, and by doing this, we will be including more people into that financial inclusion space rather than just financial access. So I love your purpose-driven concepts to deliver value? Because I think purpose and technology are really important. So for Africa Tech Week, we're thinking, what do, how do we make the purpose transcend above just society and everything? So what, one of the things that we looked at is these great organizations in Africa that were changing the world. So our purpose is actually Africa transforming the world. Because yeah. often it was the world transforming Africa yeah. and, and like, no, 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 no. So it's great. But I mean, there, there seems to be still a, a, a big exit or exodus of skills from South Africa into these developed nations. Um, and so for me, I'm like really confused because I see the opportunities in Africa, especially with tech. And I, <laughs> I mean, what, what's, I mean, what, I mean, maybe we can finish on that question, but I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. where, where do you see the opportunities with Africa and technology and, and 
women in technology, technology in on the African continent. What are what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I you know I mean I think we have so many problems to solve, unique problems to solve in in Africa, and I always go back to the prepaid issue. That if it wasn't for the prepaid, which was invented in South Africa by the way, and used by the world. Um, yeah. We wouldn't have the kind of inclusion on connectivity that we have today. Because remember, everyone needed a credit card to, to actually have a phone contract when, the contract, when, when uh, mobile phones were introduced. So yeah. without prepaid, we wouldn't have this inclusion that we have across the world, right? Yeah. And, and so we actually have to be confident enough in our own solutions to be able to take um, the risk and the opportunity in actually staying in Africa and solving African problems. They are significant. You know, when you are constrained, you actually yeah. tend to also be more innovative, innovative right? Yeah. Because, you, and because you, all, you just don't have the money to, to actually do that. And, and I also go back to things like mobile money. You know, mm. mobile money as a technology uses USSD. And why does it use USSD? It uses USSD because we only had ubiquitous 2G coverage at the time when, when we started mobile money. And it's today, just on our network, we have 42 million customers active every month, actually people supporting people that they love and doing things that they care about across the network. You're moving money. That means you are actually enabling an economy. If you look at Kenya, 98 or so percent of the population actually has M-Pesa. Right? It is okay. enabling that economy. There's like 25 or whatever million people that are on that and so on. So these are huge opportunities, but it does need innovative individuals that yeah. are passionate, that yeah. are able to drive these new solutions. These new solutions are not sitting necessarily in Silicon Valley. They are not yeah. sitting necessarily in Singapore. They are not sitting necessarily in Ukraine or anywhere yeah. in, in, in Eastern Europe. And they are not sitting in, in China. Some of them are sitting here. Yeah. Because these are the ones that are life-changing. You know, there is stuff that is not life-changing, right? Innovation. But the ones that that talk to inclusion tends to be from here, tends to be from Africa, for us at least. You know, yeah. I mean, in, in my space, to be honest, what I see, the biggest innovations that we come up with is not it's it's not stuff that we pick from somewhere else. It's stuff that actually has been picked from here. I mean, who uses content bears today? But we use the same concept of content bears to give to farmers information in order for them to improve their yields and improve their pricing and cut out the middlemen that, that are eating away at their margin and their, and, and, and their efforts as well. So, you know, those, those are the kind of stuff that we, we should be thinking about. So, so do you think that the future is bright with tech and technology and technology companies in Africa? I mean... Absolutely, absolutely. I think what we see, I mean, where we're seeing some form of um, mushrooming of capabilities. Kenya is definitely one of those areas. Yeah. I think South Africa will emerge as one of those uh, uh, hubs as well. And we're most probably going to get one between Ghana and, and, uh, and Nigeria as the other yeah. hub uh, in sub-Saharan Africa that will be coming up with real solutions around this. I mean, if I look at every time you speak to guys in the, incubate, the incubation centers in, in these countries, you're amazed yeah. at what the guys are coming up with, right? You're amazed. And also, as we move more into this API world, right, yeah. 
where everything has an API. We're making it easier for people to connect to our main services so that they can innovate. You know, Momo today, and MTN Momo today, um, we actually are having more than 20 million calls a month on our APIs, right? I mean, that is not my dream. My dream is to have more than 100 million calls because if we're having more than 100 million calls on our APIs, it means we're facilitating other people's businesses, right? That are actually using our platforms in order to innovate and create value for what they have innovated. So that's really the, 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 the challenge is how do we make more and more of this actually uh, doable? I mean, there's a colleague of mine who actually is, do, is, is running with the marketplace of APIs for Africa and within MTN, it's called Chenosis. And, and basically we've just started it, but the idea again is to say, how do we create this platform that allows other people to actually just come to one place in order to, to connect to services. So if I want to connect to um, a, a, uh, a bank in Tanzania and Rwanda and whatever, I go to one place and I connect and that's it. And I've actually connected all three or five or whatever. Same as in MNO, same as in different businesses. So we need to create the software defined kind of world and software kind of thinking process that actually allows us to actually go to the next level. This was one of my favorite podcasts ever. It was, wow, I, I didn't want time to stop and I can see that you got so much to do and I know that you got a big lineup of things to do for the day. So I'm really grateful for your time. We hope to see you again soon and we're really great, glad you're back in South Africa. Um, we wish you the best of luck in your dual role. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you come to Cape Town, come visit us. So Yolanda, thank you so much. Thanks, thanks to you. Thanks for having me.